If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. Today's text, we're picking it up at verse 14. In verses 1 through 13, that's a subject that we'll cover later on because Jesus will deal with that subject if you have been reading along with us. And by the way, we're, we're still studying and following the life of Jesus in chronological order, his ministry. Uh, but if you would, please just, uh, we'll pick it up at verse 14. The Pharisees also who were covetous, heard these things, and they derided him. And he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man pressed into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than one tittle of the law to fail. Whosoever puts away his wife marries another, commits adultery. Whoever marries another or whoever marries her, that is put away from her husband, commits adultery. Then he goes into this story. There's a certain rich man clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. There's a certain man, a beggar, named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried and he said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Abraham said, Son, Remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest the good things, and likewise Lazarus the evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would press from hence to you cannot, neither can they press to us that would come from, from there. And then said, then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, Nay, father, father Abraham, but if one were, but if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though even one would rise from the dead. Let's stand together, if you would, please, just with Bible in hand, and we'll pray over this text. Father God, again, thank you for just this opportunity to be in your word. And 
And Lord, I just pray, Father, for everyone here today that, as your word says, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear. And we know that that doesn't mean just with the physical ear, but the spiritual ear, Father. And and I know at times we could even, well, we could close our ears to the things of God. and, And just for such a time as this, I pray against that. Pray that every year we'd be able to hear what your spirit has to say. Help me, Father, as your servant, just to declare your word. And, and I pray that it's, it's clear. Remove the, the confusion if there's any, Father. We love you, Lord. And again, thank you for this privilege to study your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said together, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Again, like all other texts, it's important to establish the uh, context of what's happening here. We know that Jesus had just shared with the multitudes um, parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and also the parable of the lost son. He then goes into a, um, a, a, a teaching, um, and it dealt with finances. And that, again, as I had said previously, we will take care of that at another date. But, um, but he ends that section of Scripture there in verse 13 where he says that no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one, love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one, despise the other. And he says you cannot serve God and mammon. And again, his point's this, that you're either going to love one and hate the other, to be devoted to one and despise the other. And again, he just says you can't be enslaved to, to money. Now, of course, he's just not talking about money. It's just worldly things. But anyway, uh, he's telling them that they have to make a choice. They can't serve both. And that it is a conscious decision. It is a decision that they have to make on their own. It's the same challenge that Joshua challenged the Israelites where he said in Joshua 24, if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose, uh, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. It's either going to be whether the gods which your father served on this side of the river or the gods of the Amorites, you know. But again, he says you have to choose. But for me and my house, we're going we're gonna to serve the Lord. And again, a conscious decision of who we're going to serve. Picking it up in verse 14, he says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, of course, their ears would have perked up. Jesus is talking about money. He's all, when they heard these things, they derided him. They did not believe in some of the things that Jesus was saying. The word to deride, by the way, means to scoff at. It also means to turn up your nose at. It's not the first time they had done that. Literally, and, and again, just as a side note, that that's a, it bugs me when you're just you're, you're sharing the gospel and the love of Jesus, and and you know they're just you know they're just listening to be polite, but then you just kind of hit that chord as it as it were, and then they go, oh geez, here he goes again with that Jesus stuff, you know, you just want to <laughs> lay hands on them in love, you know, <laughs> but that's what they're doing here. Um, and the reason they're, they're scoffing him and turning up their nose is because, indeed, they were lovers of money. And Jesus reacts to their scorn. He reacts to their scoffing. He's going to expose their hearts. Look at verse 15 with me, where he says to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, 
But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men, it's an abomination in the sight of God. You know, they, they would appear before men publicly and they would be dressed in their religious garbs, their piety. And he says the bottom line is, is that God knows your hearts and what you might esteem, what you might think is so important, what you might elevate in your life. To God, it's detestable. That's what the word literally means to be an abomination, that God himself detests it. You know, you know, I love the fact that God knows their hearts. He knows our hearts. There's, there's not a thing in our hearts that we can hide from him. The psalmist put it this way, where he would say, Oh, Lord, you search me and you know me. You know my sitting down, my rising up. You understand my, my thoughts afar off. He says, There's not even a word on my tongue. Behold, oh, Lord, you know it altogether. And it's so true. And the, and the Lord knew the, the hearts of the religious leaders and how they would fool the people, you know, in, in thinking that these, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were such deep spiritual people. But the bottom line is they were just fooling them. And in verse 16, God alludes to, our Lord alludes to John the Baptist. He says the law and the prophets were until John, that even John himself would preach the gospel. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. The good news of the kingdom. And again, we have, we have been studying and at this point in Jesus's life, there are multitudes trying to press in on this. Not the religious community. The religious community is still keeping Jesus out of bay at this, in this point of his life. But the multitudes of all different races, of all different, they're trying to get to the Lord. And Jesus says in verse 17, look, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than, um, than one, one tittle of the law to fail. What he's saying there is that it's, it's, more, it's easier for heaven and earth to just pass away or disappear than for the smallest point of God's law to be overturned. And, and again, God doesn't change, folks. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Right? So whatever he had, the prophets pen out from Genesis and all the way to, to John the Beloved in the book of Revelation, those, it never changed. And you say, How? why the point? Why the emphasis? Is because today there's such, there is there's such an emphasis, there's such energy within Christendom today to change the Bible, to change the word, you know. That if Paul the Apostle was alive today, what he wrote in Romans, he would not have penned that today. He didn't understand. So how do you argue with someone who thinks they're wiser than Paul the Apostle? You know, but there's this emphasis to do away. I've even heard some of my colleagues say, you know what? We don't really need to just focus on the Old Testament. Let's just use the Old Testament as cross-reference. We'll just leave that out. No. From Genesis to Revelation is the full counsel of God. And we need every bit of it, right? I need it. You know, I need to know about the prophecies of, of the seed of the woman, how he would eventually crush the head of the serpent. He might bruise his heel. Again, I went down a bunny trail for a second there. But I need all of it. 
I need to hear, you know, when we are ushered into the millennial reign of Jesus in Re Revelation cha chapter 20, where he would say in 21, encourage one another with these words, behold, he comes quickly. I need it all. And yet the Pharisees, what they were doing, they were taking verses and they were just saying, well, it doesn't really mean that today. It doesn't mean that today. And he is going to drive home that point by using in verse 11, if you'll, uh, verse 18, I'm sorry. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced, her husband commits. You go, why would you throw that in the middle of that? You know, now listen, I'm not going to go into this thing about marriage and divorce and all that. We did that in Matthew chapter 5. But no, what he is doing, he is using this as an example. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, in order to just continue to look very pious in their, in their appearance, how they would take the word of God. And what they would do is they would soften it to a place where the demands of that, that scripture, be a verse or a chapter, the demands of that would be a little softer. And they could still come across as if they were so religious. And so, and again, I, sorry for keep using the word pious, um, religious, you know, um, that he say, no, your covetousness is a sin. It's an affront to God. And what they had done, but they made it look like they, like they were still doing it under the cloak of God and his law. They took certain commandments, softened it so it wouldn't be so hard or harsh on people. It's not the first time he uses an example like marriage and divorce. That's all he was, by the way, that's all he was doing with that, with verse 18. He goes, look, you guys, for an example, a man who divorces his wife and he commits, that's still adultery. No matter what you have done with the law, it's still adultery. And you know what they did, and just again, I'll explain. What they had done is they, they came up with two schools of thought. And one of the schools of thought is if a wife would burn the husband's eggs, and if he was tired of it, all he had to do is write out what they called a certificate of divorcement, walk up to her with that certificate, say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and then he's released from God's command. Well, that's not even in the Bible. You know, but they did it. Jesus did the same thing. He accused them of the same problem when he says, the law of God says, honor your mother and your father. But what the Pharisees did, they took that command. They didn't like what it said, so they kind of massaged the thing. They kind of presented it back to the people saying, well, that's true, except if you dedicate it to God. And we'll call it Corbin. You don't have to honor your mother and father. You can just say, sorry, mom, sorry, pop, Corbin. You can divorce your wife now, divorce your husband if you don't like how he cooks his eggs. You know, just get rid of them. And he says, no, this is detestable. This is an affront to God. But it was all because he kind of poked at their covetousness and said, no, this is wrong. They came across with their authority and with their power and with all their rank. They taught the Jews at that particular time. Now tune in. They taught the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes, that if you were a man or a woman of wealth, then that was an absolute sign that God's blessing was upon you. And that was God's sign that he is pleased with you. But if you're dealing with any kind of physical deformity or any kind of, or any kind of sin issue, well, that's a sign, a sure sign that God has placed his curse upon you. So the man with the dropsies a couple weeks ago, cursed by God. The man with the withered hand. Jesus says, stretch that baby out. That, but that was a curse by God. The woman with the issue of blood, cursed by God. 
blind, a blind Bartimaeus cursed by God. And, the, and they said it enough, massaged the scriptures enough to where people started to buy into it. And Jesus is going to challenge them about this. What he's going to really do. Well, let's go in verse 19. A certain man, he starts telling this story. A certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen fared sumptuously every day. Here's a guy that just lived in luxury. This is a guy, according to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious community. Here's a guy that's right on with God. He didn't wear, well, he wear designer clothes. He didn't go to Walmart buying his shirts. I think a thing came from Walmart. Might have been Kmart before they went out. But anyway, that's not how they looked at things. They looked again at things that if a person came across and he was rich and famous, that he was blessed by God. But if you were a beggar, look at verse 20. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, and he's full of sores. He was laid. He was laid. That means they carried him there, laid at his gate. Whose gate? Most likely the rich man's gate. Desiring to be fed from the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and he licked his sores. Now that is a pathetic picture there, is it not? I mean, the, the competition would be the dogs. That's all he has to do is compete. He's got, I got to get to that crumb before the dogs get to it. The only comfort from the using ulcerated sores is if a dog would come by and lick the pus and the, and the stuff coming out of his, out of it. And um, again, this guy is weakened due to his poverty. He's weakened because of his physical condition. Again, carried there. Uh, and, and again, uh, every day, uh, hoping uh, for the possibility of to gather crumbs. Um, Something to know here, too, by the way, before we go any further into this story. During that time period, and, and in fact, even in, in some days, to you know, uh, people would eat with their hands for most part, you know. And uh, in fact, if you were to go on some of these mission trips that Jerry takes us on, uh, it's a common sight just to see someone sit down with a, a plate of rice and delbot and man they just mix it all up they have a way of balling it up with one hand only only eat with one hand and they somehow get it all together and they flick it in their mouth somehow with their thumb and uh, you know i've tr i've tried it i look i look like a two-year-old when i'm done i uh, rice in my goatee and all but you know they do now if you're rich and food um, is is plentiful, a rich man will look around after he's done eating for a flat piece of bread, and he'll use that as a, a napkin. Now, poor won't do that. Their food is, is more valuable to them. But so, and then they would toss it. And most likely, the scene we have is this rich man just tosses it over the, the gate where this beggar is, is sitting. And so that's most likely what he would wait for every day. From this rich man. Now what tells us in 22. That they both die. It was that the beggar died. He was carried by the angels. To Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died. And was buried. Both died. Um, there's a couple things. That I want to point out. First of all. I just love that one phrase there. In verse 22. Where it says. And he was carried by the angels. That's a good indicator. Um, of what possibly it's going to be like when you finally take that last death. 
that you're going to have an angel standing there? Possibly. I, I mean, I don't know. There's no law in the Bible, so this is what it's like. But a, 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 an angel escorting you to the throne or to the gate of heaven and just saying, here you go, you're home, you know. We also have scripture texts that indicate that when we do enter into the, the throne of God, that, that Jesus will stand and greet each and every one of his sons and daughters. Yeah, I mean, I love that. I mean, you know, everybody going to uh, high five him. I'll say, no, you won't. Because you've got living creatures that are flying around that throne singing, holy, holy cows. No, not cows, but holy, holy, holy. You know, and then you've got the, uh, the 24 elders that are going in the other direction. And then you've got a green rainbow that's encircling that. You're not going to go in there thinking, oh, yeah, high five. No, you're going to fall down with the rest of them. And you're going to be worshiping, singing the songs of the redeemed. But I just thought, okay, there's a little glimpse of what it might look like when when we close our eyes and we take our last breath, that all of a sudden you just see an angel standing before you. You know, let me just share a real quick story with you. My kid brother, complications from a surgery, um, he wasn't going to make it. So they put him on life support. They put him in an induced coma. And he had been in the hospital for about six months. It, it, was, it was pretty brutal. But I remember I'd go visit him before they induced him in a coma, and I would say, Brian, just, I, I'm here, I'm praying, I just need, and my brother was a comedian, Brian, uh, you guys would have loved him, but he, uh, you know, he looks at me, and I go, I just need to know, you, you and Jesus, he goes, bro, you don't lay here for six months not getting it right with God, you know, <laughs> so I said, all right, I just need to know, you know, I just, yeah. and how you get in heaven, bro, it's Jesus, give it up, man, I'm all right, you know. I said, all right, all right. And they did. If, um, the suppressors and all, it's a long story. But anyway, they, uh, they put him in a coma, and I took my kid's sister. And uh, as I was signing a do not resuscitate order, um, my, I heard my sister yell. And I ran back in the room, and I said, what's the matter? She says, he, he just looked at me. And I asked Sue. He said, he didn't just look at you. I said, the guy's got piped down his throat. He's in a coma. I said, come on. You know, he didn't look at you. And all of a sudden, she goes, ah. And I look down. This guy's eyes are wide open. And he looks at me and her, and he smiles. And he flatlines. He dies. So I don't know. And I, I'm not a sensation. I'm not trying to get anybody with Holy Ghost goosebumps. But, I'm, but that truly happened. And you just wonder what people see. When, especially this, the sons and the daughters, my family here, what you'll see when you close your eyes for the, the, first, or the last time and open them for the first time to see heaven, to see the throne, and to see Jesus. What are you going to say to him? You know, what are you going to say? Probably nothing. Corey Ten Boom said, I won't say anything. I'm going to dive at his feet and just hold on to him for a million years. I'm with you, sister. I'll be going the other angle, just hanging on. But it tells us there that he was carried. Both died. Death is a weird thing, guys. Death is weird. And it's even weird to us when we start to think about it. We toy around. Every time I do a funeral, I see so many different emotions and reactions. And I see the highs. I see the lows. And, you know, because death is weird. You know why death is so weird, kids? Death is weird. God never created us to die. He created us in the very beginning, Adam and Eve, to, we, we're eternal beings. Death entered into the picture when sin entered in. Now we're dealing with something foreign. That's why when people die, 
especially Christians. I don't know why. I, do, I don't want to cry at your funeral. I want to do like one of those Irish tap things, you know. I want to be happy and excited, but see, um, I won't do that. I, I'll weep. I'll weep. I'll miss you. I, I know you're in heaven, but there's still this weird thing that goes on, right? Well, you're thinking, well, does that make us weird? No, well, because Solomon himself, Solomon, the son of David, you know, King Solomon, the wisest man that walked on the face of the earth, you know, he struggled over the subject of death. Listen to his words, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it to you, but just listen. Ecclesiastes 2, this is what it says. This is King Solomon. He says, so I decided to compare wisdom with foolishness and madness. For who can do this better than I, the king? Well, I thought, wisdom's better than foolishness, just as light is better than darkness. For the wise can, uh, can see where they're going, but fools walk in darkness. Yet I saw that the wise and the foolish share the same fate. Both are going to die. So I said to myself, since I'm going to end up in the same place as the fool, what's the value of all my wisdom? This is so, This all this is meaningless. For the wise and the foolish both die. The wise will not be remembered any longer than the fool. In the days to come, both will be forgotten. So I come to, the, to hate life because everything done under the sun or everything that's done under the sun is troubling. Troubling. Everything is meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. He couldn't even get a grip on death. I Listen. And mom died. We were, I was only 21 when she died and a very hard pill to swallow. And both my brother and I are there and we were both born again in the ministry. You should have seen us. You would have thought we just lost the most important thing. We didn't lose anything. Mom went home to be with the Lord. She loved him. It's just death has a weird, it just has a weird way of, of, of dealing with us. But anyway, what we notice in verse 23 now, it says, in being in tor- uh, torments in, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. This is the rich man. And he sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus is in his bosom. That could be also translated that, that uh, Lazarus was right next to Abraham. The rich man is in a place of torment. The poor man is in a place of comfort. Now, before we go any further, please listen. Before Jesus died on the cross, no one went to heaven. There's this mistaken theology or mistaking that that the saints in the Old Testament went to heaven. They did. No one could go to heaven until the sin issue was dealt with, right? So I'm talking about David. I'm talking about Jay. I'm I'm talking about all the patriarchs. They did go to a place called Hades. And when you hear the word Hades, you think right away, well, that's hell. It's true and it's not true. Hades is a compartment with, well, Hades is a sphere where there's two compartments. The one side of that compartment, it seems to be torment. The rich man here used the word, I'm in torments, I'm in flame. So it's a place for people. The other side seems to be a place of comfort. It's not heaven. Again, God is holy. He's just. And until there was the sacrifice for sin, no one could go to heaven. 
Someone would try to argue with me, possibly Enoch, he walked with God, was not, was taken up. But it doesn't tell us he was taken directly to the throne of God. My gut feeling is he did not completely enter into God's presence without the sacrifice of the lamb. I could be wrong. But um, no one went to heaven until Jesus died. Why? Again, God being holy and just, sin could not enter into his throne room. So when Jesus went to the, the cross, the debt that was owed, the sin issue, past, present, and future, all placed on our Lord on the cross. Now, I know many of you know this already. When Jesus said from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama shabachani, my God, my God, why did you turn your face from me? This is his son. Why did you turn your back on me? At that time, God began to judge Jesus for us. Now, I'm not asking you to do this literally, but just if you could think of every sin you've ever committed in the past, the struggles that you might be struggling with today, and God forbid something we might blow in the future. Everything from the past, the present, the future, in the realm of eternity was placed on Jesus. And God turned his back for us. Turned his back on his own son. Every drop of blood that flowed down his body that hit that ground was redemption money. Was the payment to pay for my sin. So when Jesus said, it is finished, to tell us die, it is finished, that meant that now the sin issue has been taken care of. Now those that might be on that other side of the gulf a place of torment, they remain there. But everybody else that was on this, this side of eternity, Abraham's bosom, bosom and on, we go now directly, when we close our eyes, we go directly to the throne of God because Jesus paid for the sin issue. Amen, folks? Listen, you and I, we get saved by looking back to the cross some 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament saints would look forward to the cross. It is still by faith and only faith. See, the Old Testament saints would have verses like Isaiah 53. He was wounded for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquity. The chastisement for my peace was laid upon him. You know, Psalms 22, they have pierced my hands, my feet. All they that walk by with me, they shake their fingers at me. Oh, he saved others. He can't save himself, right? My tongue cleaves to the top of my root, right? Oh, oh, give him something to drink. I mean, it's all through. So they could, the Old Testament saints, could look at the scriptures and look ahead to the cross. We look back, but still, it's all by faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, one of our, our old friend, right? You know, for by grace are you saved, how? Through faith. Old Testament saints, by faith. New Testament saints, by faith. We're still saved the same way, through faith. Um, so what did Jesus do when he, when, he, when he died? They put him in that tomb and he was there for three days. What did he do? Well, Ephesians tells us, Therefore, he said, he that ascended on high, he led captivity captive. He gave gifts to men. Now that he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also will descend into the lower parts of the earth. He who has descended is also the one who will ascend far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So what Jesus did during those three days is he went down and he proclaimed liberty to those that were in Abraham's bosom. 
And he led the captivity free. Now, Matthew's gospel tells us that the men of renown, literally the ones who came from Abraham's bosom, was making that resurrection process to go into the throne of God. They literally stopped by Jerusalem, (laughs) started walking around. Can you imagine that? You know, hey, wasn't that Joe? Yeah, it looks like him. Didn't he just die last week? Yeah, you know. And then that's exactly what the Bible tells us. Um, the one thing that I also want to point out to you uh, is that Jesus did everything he could possibly do to open that door for heaven. He couldn't have done any more. You, you see, you ever hear someone say, well, if he is a God of love, then why would he send anybody to hell? Well, they're right. They're right, they're wrong. God doesn't send anyone to hell. He's never sent anyone to hell. You literally have to climb over the body of Jesus to get to hell. You have to, like these Pharisees and Sadducees and their wickedness, you literally have to reject everything God has done for you. You in your mind would have to say, I'm going to soften up the word. I am going to make it so it's not so hard to embrace. And I'm going to say, you know what? Good works is going to get me into heaven. No, it won't. You can live like a pope. Maybe I shouldn't say that. You can live like a saint. But if you're not born again, you're not getting into the kingdom of God. The scales aren't in heaven going, okay, he's kind of, let's see, yeah, the good's outweighing the bad. Our good works to God are like a filthy rag. There is none that does good. No, not one. So for someone to say, I can just work my way into heaven is only fooling themselves. We get to heaven because it's a gift of God and it's through faith in Christ. That's how a person gets to heaven. Again, it's it, why then why? Well, well, before I go any further, just for you students of Scripture, Hades is not hell. Hades is a place of, of torment. We get that from this, this story here. And by the way, most scholars believe this is an actual event. This is not a parable. In fact, many scholars believe that the Pharisees knew exactly who he was talking about. Early church history actually names the rich man. So this is something that really took place. And they understood it. But the reason God created hell was because, listen, and I'll try to say this so you can understand it. Satan, his followers are eternal creatures. They can't die. He can't, God can't kill them. They're eternal, just like God is eternal. He created them, but they can't die. Sin, hell, and death has to be eliminated. And according to the word, sin and death and hell was cast into the lake of fire. That's the reason for the lake of fire. He never created it for another human being. But because the sin issue was never taken care of, thus makes them sin. And because God is just, they'll never make their way into heaven. They will be cast into Gehenna. Gehenna apparently is like a lake of fire. 
It tells us it's where the worm never dies. There's gnashing of teeth there. There's torment. There's a consciousness, and we'll see this even in this story, that they had a chance. Can you imagine being in in eternity, separate from God, in absolute darkness, in a state of uh, uh, falling, and and knowing in your mind, I'll never have another chance to make this right. That's why the, the prophet says, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. Today you've got to think, well, I'm not too sure if I can buy the church thing. I don't buy the church thing. I, bu- I buy the Jesus thing. And if the, these walls were to collapse without, without us in them, I'm just saying, if, if this was to disappear, you and I would find somewhere else to meet and have church together. Because we are the church, not a building. But so God to make so God can be just, He had to create hell, Gehenna, where death and the devil and his followers and all those sin issues are cast into the lake of fire to be sealed. By the way, according to Revelation, to be sealed and never to be remembered again. Once we're in heaven and that sealing is taking place, we're not going to sit around and talk about how Satan duped us. It's not even going to be a thought. It's going to be done with and judged. So I got to finish this up. Verse 24. He says, then, then, then he cried. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus that he might dip his finger, tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Man, I am in torment. I'm ang- in anguish in these flames. And, and Abraham said to him, son, remember that in, in your lifetime you received good things. And likewise, Lazarus, the poor guy, well, he, he suffered evil things. But now he's comforted in, in your torment. And again, he's saying to him, remember. Remember about this. So that tells me, again, that in the eternal, separate from God, in outer darkness, there's going to be an eternal consciousness of the chances that everyone have had to escape this. God could, and again, I want to make it clear, God did everything he could possibly do for you to, to prevent it. You literally have to reject Jesus Christ. And when they heard this, right? I know the Pharisees were just absolutely shocked. Because they had this mentality. If you were rich like, like this rich man. If you can clothe yourself in purple. If you can fare sumptuously. Meaning you had food every day. If you could do that, that's God's blessings upon your life. Don't we hear that in Christendom today? Now, I'm not saying God can't bless people, but if you think that that's God's sign on your life, that he's pleased with you, you're mistaking. So he's asking for this dip of finger, the, the finger, the coolest of, and he's going to just, so he says in verse 26, besides this, he says, no, there's a great gulf between us. You can't come here. We cannot come over there. That also tells me that it is a permanently fixed place. There's no, there's no changing. And again, I have a lot of dear friends who are Roman, Roman Catholic, and they have this, this teaching about purgatory. Folks, there's nothing in the Bible doesn't even come close. There's one text they use 
um, to try to support it. But there's nothing in the Bible. The Bible knows nothing about purgatory. It knows nothing about someone trying to do, you know, some things to get you out of purgatory. No, once a person closes his eyes and enters into eternity, it's done. He says, there's, you can, even in Hades, you can't. The thing when I read verse 27 and 28, let me read it to you. I beg you, therefore, then, if that's the case, and, and if it's, I can't leave this place, he goes, then, Father, that you would just send him, the, Lazarus, the poor guy, to my father's house. I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of, of torment. You can just see this guy going, oh, my goodness. All right, I blew it. Now there's a consciousness, not only that it's, it, this is fixed, but now there's a consciousness of, of I got to get back to my family or, I, or something has to happen. Send him back. Let my family know that they don't want to come here. You know, um, again, if he could go back, the one thing he would never do again is mock it. He would never mock it. And I think if he could get back and he could share the gospel, he would start with his family first. There's great concerns in the eternal uh, bound souls. So Abraham said to him, look, they've got Moses, they've got the prophets, let them hear them. No, he's not blowing him off. He's actually saying that they've got the greatest witness right there. Just like today, you know, your greatest witness for your loved ones today, as far as heaven and hell, give them a Bible. Let them read the scriptures. And if they refuse, then just read it to them. And let the word of God be what it says it is. It is a sharp, double-edged sword. It can pierce the heart. It can deal with the intents of the, mind, the heart and the mind. It can change somebody's life just by reading it. Just by listening. And look, they've got the scriptures. He's arguing with Abraham. Look at verse 30. He says, no, Father Abraham, but if one, if one goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. Now, what? Now, listen, honestly, I would think the same thing. If, if, if my brother just appeared right now, <laughs> other than falling over with a heart attack, I'd believe. That's the way I think. But Abraham said, no. Look at verse 30 or 31. If they're not going to hear Moses and the prophets, they're not going to be persuaded. Even if someone were to raise from the dead. And you know what? He was right. Because this isn't the only time that Jesus dealt with a resurrection or bringing somebody back from the dead. You got Jairus' daughter. You got the servant. You know, in a couple weeks, and now check, check, this, check this out. In a couple weeks from now, he is going to be in a little small village called Bethany. Where his good friend, Lazarus, another Lazarus, is going to be in a tomb. And he's going to be in there for a few days. He started to de decompose. In fact, that my old king says, no, don't move the... He stinketh. Now, he would have by then. He tells them to roll the stone away. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. He's still in his, rap, his, his burial clothes. He comes hopping out. Jesus has to tell them, take the cloths away from him so he can breathe. He's alive. And you would think, okay, that would have started a revival. There should be a massive growth spurt within Christendom at the time. No, you know what happened? Hey, read it for yourself. What happened is they began to plot, these religious people, same people, 
to plot Lazarus's death. They want to kill him again. You know, we can't have somebody walking around like this. Well, why? Well, he came back from the dead. We got to kill him again. Because then people might believe in what Jesus is saying. Does that sound a little bit rational? No, it doesn't. But, but that's exactly what they did. And the truth of the matter is, miracles d- does not bring anybody to salvation. In fact, this is what the Bible says. And I'm a li- down a little bunny trail here, but, but, but bear with me. The Bible says that it's an evil and an adulterous generation that seeks for signs. Give me a sign. Give me, give me, give me a sign. More signs, more signs. Let, let's have more people slain in the spirit. And I'm not down in that. Let, listen, there's all different types of churches. I get that. But if you're only going to worship Jesus because you want to see signs, what happens if no signs are given? Will you walk away? Will you grow? See, our growth comes by the word of God. We do have the writings of Moses and we have the writings of the prophets and we have the writings of the apostles. We have the writings. We have it all. But faith comes by hearing. And what? Hearing by the word of God. We have to be careful. We have to be careful. They had every... Rich, you can make your way out. They had every opportunity. They had the prophecies. They had Isaiah 53. They had Psalms chapter 22. In fact, they had prophecy after prophecy after prophecy where they could have believed. You think about this. In prophecy, they, uh, God said that he would be born of a virgin, and he was. That he would be born in Bethlehem, he was. That he would be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he was. That he would come from the line of Judah, and he, and he was. That he would be divine, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, and he was. That he would be rejected at his first coming, he was. And more than that, even at all those, it even says that he would die on a on a cross. Well, you say, well, what's the big deal? I got pictures of the cross in my house. No, no, but for an Old Testament saint, they didn't even know what a crucifixion was. When David penned out Psalms 22, it wasn't even invented yet. It wasn't for another thousand years where the Persians would invent this this way of killing people on a cross, and then later, five or six hundred years later, the Romans would, in, would embrace it and use it as a form of capital punishment. But when that was penned out, what are you talking about? They pierced my hands and my feet. They had prophecy after prophecy after prophecy. Some of the saints believed it, looking forward to the cross. Some of the saints in the New Testament, looking back, at the cross. And that's how we are saved. We don't have to come up with the stories. And we don't have to come up with. Um, I don't know. Theatrics. All we have to do is present people the word of God. That's it. Christians start to develop. Uh, a sharp tool. Memorize scriptures. Be able to pull something from your memory bank, Aaron, and share with somebody. But you may, let it be a scripture verse. Not stories, not testimonies. And I love testimonies. Love them. But that testimonies is not what brings people to Christ. In fact, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, Look, we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. They use these cunning devised fables. 
stories, trickery. They just presented the scriptures. Would you stand with me this morning? Talking about testimonies, I had a chance to share a little bit at Missing Peace last Friday. And um, when I started off my, my conversation with everybody there was I said the sign behind me calls it the missing piece. But if you have Christ in your heart, there's no missing piece. People who might wander in without Christ, yeah, there's a big gaping, gaping hole and there's a missing piece. But for you and I, as Paul the Apostle said it so beautifully, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of Jesus. That's where we're going when we close our eyes. But God, you know what, gang? It's not easy for some people, especially religious people. I'm not saying these Pharisees, it's, that, that was a hard pill for them to swallow. It's a hard pill for even today with religious people to swallow. I'll I'll work my way. I'll be a good Catholic. I'll be a good Baptist. I'll be a good Calvary Chapelite, whatever that is. Would you guys just lower your heads and let me pray with you? Father, we thank you again. And we thank you for your word. I just thank you for our salvation. Lord, you've called us from different parts of the world. You've called us maybe from different religions. Maybe you've called us from abusive background or maybe we were addicts, whatever. But we all come to a common ground and that common ground in the middle is the cross of Jesus. And if there's anyone here today, Lord, that doesn't know you and is not really sure what side of eternity they're going to go to, that they would just pray in their heart this simple little prayer. Jesus, forgive me. And come into my life. I believe you died for me. I believe you were buried for me. And on that third day, you rose from the dead. I make you the Lord of my life. I believe in my heart you're alive. So forgive me for Christ's sake. I receive salvation in Jesus' name. Amen.